from the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Penn Badgley. He plays Joe Goldberg, the obsessive and murderous main character in the Netflix thriller, You. He's a murderer. How could he be capable of love? I mean, really, like, do we really believe that those people are capable of of like being, you know, empathetic and, and sensitive and caring and being, you know, the kind of man that Joe sometimes appears to be. Penn talks to me about how he gets into the right mindset to play a cold-blooded killer. He also shares his response to allegations of sexual improprieties leveled by several women at Chris D'Elia, who played Henderson on You, and why it's important that he uses platform as a celebrity to advocate for social change. Here we go. Now for your Emmy consideration is BBC America's Killing Eve, the delectable story of MI6 agent Eve. I'm not a very nice lady. An enigmatic assassin, Villanelle. Just so you know, I'm kind of a big deal in this industry. Critics hail the third season as deliciously watchable. Haven't you heard? Genre-defying. Wow. And a bloody good time. Obviously. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding lead actress in a drama series for Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer. Thank you. Thank you. Penn, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. How are you doing? Well, I mean, that's a loaded question for, I think, every person in the world these days. But I am, you know, my spirit's strong. Uh, that's, that, yeah, that's about as much as I can say. How about you? The same. Some friends of mine have been like, I wonder if we need to just come up with a different way to greet each other now. Because like you said, it's just such a big question to ask someone these days. I haven't figured out an alternative but. It's interesting you bring up the question because the question, I mean, it points at a social convention we have, which is basically meaningless. Like, hey, how are you? I don't care at all. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> you know? But it is that weird thing of like, I do care now because I want to talk about how I'm feeling because it feels so weird and I don't know how to process things. Yes, exactly. What it seems like the crazy timing of of these events with COVID and then George Floyd and and the movement really picking up steam is just that I think it calls to mind all of the things that really matter. There's no doubt there. So anyway, let's talk about my show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first I want to talk, I mean, you've been using your platform to raise awareness on various issues, like whether it's racial justice, wellness, corona and its effect on relationships. And, you know, previously before all this, you were, you know, using it to discuss the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, it seems like an obvious question, but why why is it important to you to use your voice for social causes? And what have been some of the resources that have helped you become more acquainted with these issues? That's a great question. Well, I want to also, like, attach the disclaimer that, I mean, everybody's learning. I'm, I myself am certainly learning. I think now more than ever... It's probably true that like people are, are less interested in what celebrities have to say. And I think the reason you're a celebrity is then also like, you know, called into question. And I think increasingly I feel like I I want to be an artist whose work speaks for itself. And I think um, 
one of the reasons that I started to speak vocally um, alongside this organization, the Tahereh Justice Center, was because um, I think the responsibility to speak to the reality of domestic violence was part of it. And then the fact that this organization does that and the way it intersects with um, the lives of immigrant women and, and children... I know the founder of that organization um, personally. We had a friendship, so um, I think the most meaningful, lasting change is is sustained, not necessarily achieved, but at least sustained through meaningful relationships and friendships. You know, so to me, I'm thinking like, you know, what is my responsibility as a public figure? I think more and more people are realizing like we we can't look to our public figures to to change the world, quote unquote, you know? And I think right now, I mean, anything that I've been saying or doing, is it enough? No. Is it uh, too little? Or, may I, you know, who, who, who knows? I just think I've been trying to strike a posture uh, that is both humble and learning while also wanting to speak up when it really is the right moment. You know, we've all got slightly different roles in what's happening right now. And... Yeah, I just think like a call to responsibility and and accountability is, of course, like is really important. And how that manifests in the way that I speak out again, I, you know, it's just it's a learning process. So I'm just trying to do what I what I understand. Well, I think the reason so many people find it hard is because it feels so overwhelming at times to think about these big issues. But the thing is, is like now we have time to think about it and reflect, it's a interesting moment to sort of grapple with so many things at once, though. And I wonder, you know, when you're not trying to better yourself by educating yourself, what do you do to sort of let your mind relax? Like, this sounds superficial, but what are you like watching or reading to let yourself have a break? Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if maybe we don't need a break. I wonder if we've been on a break for far too long. <laughs> if we're exhausted. Well, okay, so at least speaking as like a as a white person, a white man, and a successful out in the world, like young white man, I I don't know that I think a break is what I need. If I feel exhaustion and fatigue, emotional instability, well, you know, welcome to the world. Certainly we all it's universally human to suffer in a way. And to find, you know, joy, I think, in the, in, the, in the suffering at times, if that's possible. But I've actually not been watching. I, you know, I've tried to watch some things that will take my mind off, off what's happening, so to speak. And it doesn't at all feel good. It's not really my inclination anyway. I mean, I've actually, I think the last thing I watched in its entirety was a two and a half hour video by an educator named Dr. Joy DeGruy that really is like a, a what would you call it? It's sort of like a... I want to say like a crash course in the true history and evolution of slavery and the African-American community, but that's an oversimplification. Yeah, I mean, so the the one thing I did watch that was like, that was fiction that I was really moved by was um, that Derek Cianfrance, Mark Ruffalo, I know this much is true. And I I found that... um, rewarding and and moving and it's a tough watch yeah you know what's funny is that i i ended up reading reviews later just kind of curious like what the reception was like and i gathered that everybody thought it was so sad and so dark and so tragic and somehow neither my wife or i experienced it that way there's a degree of reverie in the 
drudgery of human suffering that I think those particular storytellers are bringing out there. No doubt it's heavy, no doubt it's dark, but I didn't find it to be heavier than than the way so many of us are feeling, you know? So in a way, I don't know. That, that was I don't often turn to fictional storytelling of any kind. That's just, again, not in my nature, really. I've read one book of fiction since I was 22. <laughs> you know, it's just the way that, that I happen to be wired, so. So why do you think you're drawn to portraying fiction? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's part practical, part creative. I mean, on one hand... We work. We work in the places we do. We have a job, and you know there are there are forces at play there that you aren't always able to steer entirely unto yourself. And then I think what has been really gratifying to see with my show is how there's been a real interesting dovetail of the surreal kind of fantasy, fictional, frothy pop element of it but then also seeing how that can get into the gritty details of reality. Ideally, there's a, there's, a, there's a balance being struck that is both like alleviating and enjoyable, but also thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that balance struck in anything I've worked in so much as in this one because of how it's a really successful show. There's no doubt there, right? And then it's also taken seriously. And that's not, you know, it's not always easy to do. And I think that's a testament to people's increasing, not just willingness, but like desire to dig deeper. Because we know that the world is in need of many kinds of healing, you know, structural, emotional. I don't think people are as content to just sort of Netflix and chill, as it were, you know. And which I mean literally, by the way. I know that it used to be a euphemism for... (laughs) I actually mean chilling and Netflix, watching Netflix or any of the platforms. With two seasons of the show behind you, what has surprised you about the level of dialogue or conversation it has sparked? It's this outright thirst for Joe while also being responsible. It's like that that online culture and media where something can be a meme. I mean, the show is such a meme in and of itself. I don't know. I feel like Gen Z, young people in general, seems to be really capable of like holding many conflicting truths at once. And they seem to really get a kick out of this show. So I'm not going to tell them no. (laughs) (laughs) Did Gossip Girl prepare you in any way for the ways in which the fans engage with the series? Because I remember when Gossip Girl came out, like the early days of Twitter, pre-Twitter. Very early, very, very early. I mean, it may not have even fully been released like as a platform. People were aware of it, that it was going to... I remember having a a meeting with a publicist then, and she mentioned this thing called Twitter, and it sounded like something I was not interested in at all. And it remained that for a long time, even when it was big. But yeah, it was 2007, I mean, the iPhone hadn't even come out when we were when we started shooting Gossip Girl, so it was a very different culture. The, the concept of Gossip Girl even is a little... It doesn't pan out the way that you would think, because actually now everybody is doing to themselves what Gossip Girl was doing to the... Uh, or I guess what I was doing to the, um, to the other protagonists in the show. You know, like airing out all their dirty laundry on a, on a social media platform, basically. But people just do that. Like, it's so casual, you know. It's not, it's not such an isolated, interesting incident. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how the, the reboot has 
met the times, but uh, it definitely prepared me for at least being on a on a like a cultural phenomenon, you know, like something that that people get really excited about really fast. Did it sort of at least give you permission to embrace it versus feeling resentful about it? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, look, when you do anything when you're in your 20s, you're going to feel many different ways about it. And the focus, the attention, the, the stimulation that you get on a, on a worldwide, very visible show, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a unique thing. It's definitely not something that anyone, I think, knows how to how to approach mentally. or It's just something that happens, and you know, you take it in stride as much as you can. In a way, I worked out all the kinks on Gossip Girl so that by the time this one happened, I, I, could, I could take to it probably more gracefully, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about season two of you, and maybe I'll start with the end, or towards the end. I mean... You knew the whole time that Love, who's played by Victoria Pedretti, would turn out to be a murderer too, but there were parts of it that surprised you, at least, I guess, his reaction to the reveal. Talk a little bit about, like, what did you decide was most important for you to convey at that point? I think the two things that I honed in on with Joe is, um, on the side of his sensitivity, it was just how much he believed himself when he said anything really when he lied i just believed him i believed myself you know in terms of his violence i mean i think that is also what i focused on just how much he believed he was right and then probably by episode seven and eight of season two he's confronting this psychosis that he clearly has um, the pathology that he clearly has. I mean, he's not approaching it the way that one really would need to, I guess, but he's trying. Actually, I'm remembering in episode eight, there is a song by a rapper named Saba. I first heard him on a chance track called Angels, and he's a really, really interesting artist, really dynamic. He has this particular song on his record, I think it's called Care For Me, and the song is called Life, and it is about his life and the life of those lived around him. And it's extremely, it's harrowing. And the, you know, the violence visited upon him and his family being in the position that he's in. And he talks about, you know, others who were below him, others who were above him, and, you know, the mental illness in his family, the, the prison sentences in his family, the, the, the murders and deaths that surrounded him and and I actually, to be honest, I'm talking about it intellectually now, but there was something about that song that somewhere during season two, I started to get in touch with Joe as um, truly the embodiment of the most lethal elements of what we call white privilege, but is, you know, really the, the racist policy that has founded our country and how a, a white man can embody that m- more with blindness and 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 lethality in a way that you know our show is not meant to be that kind of incisive social commentary i think and particularly not around race but i was having a private experience with joe that to me was really disturbing his violence became really real for me like the fact that joe was allowed to be who he is you know, I mean, that's that's actually not a metaphor. That's that's real, you know. 
No one else is allowed to be Joe. So that I started to get in touch with, and that would bring spontaneously tears to my eyes. Like that brought that that was when I started to get into the deep psychosis of of our country, and felt for me privately. I mean, again, I'm not saying the show is inherently doing these things necessarily. I don't want to like put that kind of pressure on us or the creators or anyone watching it, but I privately dove into that level of like societal psychosis to ground the performance in in something that you know was was very real, very visceral and individual, but then also like at the social level, at the societal level. That's just kind of the way my brain works. So I, you know, whether or not it actually shows up, I I don't know. This episode is brought to you by AMC's Better Call Saul, the drama Nerdist calls equal parts funny, heartbreaking, exciting, and tragic. Entertainment Weekly hails this past season as the most intense, complex, and formidable season yet, with CNN calling it a dazzling balancing act, and Rolling Stone hailing Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn winners. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories. Even the moment where Love reveals that she killed Delilah, Joe's landlord, the way he looks at her like she's crazy. In that moment, she dismantles his sort of narrative that women are weak without him. But talk a little bit about his response to, you know, that reveal, like the way he changes his view on her. Well, it's perfect in a way. I remember Victoria and I, because, you know, we've got to work together all the time and we're like forming this chemistry. We're trying to, we were loosely imagining some kind of Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing. And then when we found out that actually, no, of course Joe can't accept her. Of course he can't. Because the whole reason he is the way that he is, is because he can't accept anybody. You know, he won't accept anybody. So much so that he will deny their, their life. He will deny their right to exist. He is waiting for someone to meet a fantastical standard that doesn't exist. And, it, and is based in, you know, the, the sort of fantasies that our society has constructed. And again, like, I'm not suggesting that this is what the show is always about. But it, it's significant that the show is what it is now of all times. To me, I experience them as interconnected very viscerally. And so Joe's denial of love is that thing. It's like, he's not actually looking for love. Like anybody watching along the way who lets themselves think that is, you know, getting too comfortable as a viewer. And fine, that's part of the trip. That's what we're doing, you know? He's a murderer. How could he be capable of love? I mean, really. Like, do we really think that serial killers are a very unique kind of person. Like, do we really believe that those people are capable of, of like being, you know, empathetic and, and sensitive and caring and being, you know, the kind of man that Joe sometimes appears to be? So it's definitely there. <laughs> if, if you want to go that deep, I think it is there. It's very clear that you think deeply about either the 
themes that the show addresses or your interpretation of what you're playing. And I know your season two co-star, Chris D'Elia, who had a subplot as a beloved comedian who drugs and assaults young women, was recently accused of sexual improprieties by several women, some of whom were underage at the time. And I just want to note to our listeners that Chris has said that he has never knowingly pursued any underage women and that all his relationships have been both legal and consensual and that he has never met or exchanged inappropriate photos with them. My question for you is, have the allegations against Chris caused you to think more about those themes of toxic masculinity in the show or even about your character who is a predator in his own right? And I know these are things that you have struggled with openly before, and I just wonder how recent days made you think about it even more deeply. Yeah, I mean, I think you posed the question really beautifully and sensitively because it is important in the sense that systemically it needs to be addressed, individually it needs to be addressed. Am I the person to address all of those things? It did affect me deeply. I was very troubled by it. I am very troubled by it. I don't know Chris. I know that if there's anything we need to do in this age is to believe women. I also... No, there's, you know, there's a lot that I cannot speak to, obviously. And I think the one thing that I, that, I, that I can speak to that I think is like maybe relevant for listeners now is that individuals, of course, need to be brought to justice as much as that is possible, right? One thing that our culture tends to do quite systematically and methodically is to revel in identifying villains so that the system can remain evil. So, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say evil. I, well, you know, I don't know. If, if it's not evil, I don't know what is. <laughs> but, you know, so that the system can remain intact and unchanged. We point to individuals in power who, yes, are upholding and perpetuating all of these terrible, terrible norms, you know, which are often abusive, if not downright lethal. So those individuals ideally would be brought to justice. Ideally, there would be less of those individuals. But what is really important is to recognize that the system, the policies that underwrite every given system, the practices, uh, the regulations, the laws that underwrite every one of these systems, which act as a haven for individuals who take advantage, you know, namely white men and women, but, you know, white people and white men and white men of a particular breed you know, who are successful and charismatic. I think that we need to remember that that is the level of change we're looking for. Um, so what I think about then in my position, I mean, certainly I think of my own conduct and I am thankful <laughs> that I have tried to uphold, a, you know, a, a certain level of conduct throughout my life. And I also am thinking about uh, how to... The idea that a show like ours would indirectly, unwittingly be a haven for people who are abusive is disturbing. It's very disturbing. What does it take to change that? Because it's not just vetting individuals. It's like there, there needs to be a change in culture and attitude so that that kind of behavior is so clearly um, reprehensible. It's so clearly like anti-human. That is also what I think about on a given project I'm on. And, you know, to the degree that the subject matter is 
conflicting and challenging in that end, trying to, you know, create that culture? Does a show like ours help to create that culture? Where I know, well, I know that at least our show thinks about things in a, in a, in a dismantling, deconstructive manner, right? Like, I, I would hope that at least our show is not serving to uphold these uh, kind of like bunk ways of being in these systems, right? So, you know, that's as much as I think I can and should say. Um, but, I, but I do appreciate you asking it because it's, it, it's, it's super important. Well, it's also figuring out how women and young girls can dismantle their own sort of like conditioning. And, you know, we're seeing that some of that is happening and it, it helps when, you know, people like you speak out about it instead of staying silent. Yeah. So. And that's where I think I've spoken out a lot about it generally. And, you know, I unfortunately, in this case, I just, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm not involved uh, in this, you know, the first thing our producers did was reach out to Jenna, who played Ellie, um, you know, the girl opposite Chris in those scenes, just to make sure she had felt safe and nothing, you know, and 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 all of these things, we could we could feel safe and sound there, right? Um, so as far as our show is concerned, as far as we are concerned, you know, there's only so much we can take responsibility for, um, and I say we pretty broadly because we're all doing different things. I'm at the end of the day an actor, and I don't have a lot to do with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But I do think in the future I would like that to change, you know, personally. So. Well, and I imagine like with that situation, what and everything we're dealing with now, and the fact that you're going to become a father soon, it has you thinking about a lot of these things and what the state of the world is right now. Yeah, I mean, that's all. I, I, you know, it's funny. It's like knowing that there's this press cycle right now for my show, I'm just kind of like, I don't even know how to talk about my show right now. Of course, my publicist and everybody's like, just talk about the show. Don't talk about anything else. <laughs> but I'm like, I, you know, I mean, does anybody want to hear about that? You brought up a good point. And that was something that I would actually, I asked the women we were working with a lot, you know, seasons one and two. I'm like, what do you think of this? Like, what what does this particular storyline say to you? What is, I remember even asking Zach Cherry, who played Ethan in season one, you know, about the representation of his character, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking critically about all this stuff and really wanting to hear from people who are in that position themselves. What, what do you think of this? And I tend to get pretty positive responses, particularly from young women, about the way they think about this show and and the way they think about these storylines. You know, I fret a lot and I and I and I wring my hands because, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, this is ooh, this is this is tough, you know? But I mean so many things can be true at once. And I mean people always surprise you, thank God. Yeah. I mean I yeah. So I think the way that young women have responded to this show has been particularly heartening. What conversations would you pen have with Joe about the path he is on? Like, and where do you think he is like 10 years from now? I mean, if he's not in jail or dead from pissing off the wrong person. I mean, I guess at that point, like, what have we seen with people like him? I mean, I guess they, they try and start a couple of different lives and then they eventually, it catches up to them. Some, you know, some it never does. Some, I mean, I listened to this harrowing podcast about the uh, suspected killer of the of the black dahlia this this uh this have you ever heard of this it's called the root of evil wow that is an amazing story and it's told by the family members 
the, the, you know, the offspring, the generations of offspring from this man who, um, was never convicted in his lifetime, but is now suspected to be the, the murderer. And it's, um, so, you know, you have cases like that where people can get into their nineties and, 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 you know, justice is not to be found in this life. But what would I say to Joe? I really don't know. Joe is such a, an impossible thing because of how much he cares. I, you know, that, that's the thing to me where I'm like, whether it's a clinical portrayal of psychosis or something that is totally fantastical and namely entertainment is not really, I guess, my place to judge anymore if I can help it. Because I feel like I just believe what he says, which means when he cares, he cares. But I don't know that someone like him is really is real. I don't I don't know. I th- to me that's where I interact with Joe much more like this this concept an allegory. And when he becomes real outside of my portrayal like in between action and cuts something special different happens and I just you know, I believe him and I am him or or something along those lines. You know, but when I think about him, I'm just like, ugh, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. If he, if there's any way he's real, I just, ugh. You know, we got, we got to have a lot of meaningful conversations with a lot of other people before we start talking to people like Joe. I, I got no patience with Joe. Well, so much of the show is spent in Joe's head, and we get to hear those thoughts, whether they're lies or not. How have you settled into the role as narrator? It's part that I really enjoy because it does feel like when Joe has the most fun in a way, um, it's the most animated I often am. You know, whereas when I'm on camera, I'm often quite stoic. It's sometimes the hardest as well because he, he also says some of the worst things in his mind. If I'm ever having a conversation with Joe, it does have to do with, like, I don't believe anybody's born bad, right? Like, I mean, he, you know, at some point he was traumatized. At some point he was abused. The part of him that doesn't, that was denied love as a child that led him to be who he is that allows me to access a deep sadness and i think sometimes you know towards the end of season two in the vocal booth that was happening quite spontaneously you know when he is trying to come to terms with who he is and he seems to get so close but then he turns away he really turns away well by the end of the season we learn love is pregnant with joe's child they've moved into a house together And in the last moments of the finale, we see Joe staring through a fence at a new neighbor, sort of once again entranced by the promise of something else. What's your theory about where things go from here? I mean, the truth is, I don't know. My impression is that as somewhat like emotionally disappointing but resonant it is that that the second season ended the way that it does we are like oh my this guy isn't changing well of course he's not changing we're not really aware of what it takes for somebody like him to change yet maybe you know collectively so the fact that he's now i think it's taking the allegory a step further and how people do often feel kind of prisoners in their own home in their own marriage in their own family and i think that has to do with these kind of fantasy lives that people lead in their minds that we all kind of live as a result of the stories we've been told about love and about ourselves, you know, how a relationship should be, how a marriage should look and feel. So to me, I think it's going to be interesting to see Joe and love in a home together and with a child. I mean, yeah, I'm really interested to see what that means to Joe because the writers always surprise me. They always, they, you know, it's like, I think I know what's going on, but then they always manage to surprise me. And 
And it often means turning away from where I, as an actor playing Joe, would want him to go because it would maybe be a little bit more, it would be like a change of pace and more fun. But they keep turning Joe into really what he should be. And it's hard initially to read, but I think it ends up tracking really well, you know, intellectually and emotionally. So yeah, I think it's just going to be in the same way that I've spoken about all of this stuff in several levels of like, you know, allegory. I think it's going to do that for family now. Well, Penn, our final question comes from our previous guest, J.B. Smoove of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Since you're on a show called You, I want to hear your rant on me. Woo! I meet him times. I meet him times. No, no, a minute straight, a minute straight, a minute straight, nonstop, nonstop minute. That's sweet. Woo! I stop rant. Oh, that is, that's a brilliant request. And I feel so put on the spot by, of all people, like I respect him so much as, a, as an actor and a, like a comic force. I can't do that right now. I cannot do that. <laughs> I, I would like to say that I will do this. I will release it. But I can't, I can't do that on the spot. That's not the kind of space I'm in. Yeah, not, not now. Not now. Not in this climate. <laughs> Well, maybe you can do it and send it back to us if you're feeling inspired. Just to clarify, did he mean me as in like me, not him? Yes, me as in you. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. That's a, that's well, so a, now- that's a strong, I mean, <laughs> I wish I could, I wish I could arise now, but I, um, I, that's, that's a tall order. Well, I'm going to ask you to grab the baton and hand off the question to our next guest, late night host, James Corden. What would you like to ask him? And it could be about anything. Wow. I want to ask him what it felt like to have Stevie Wonder sing to his, was it his wife? I remember seeing him tear up with Stevie Wonder in the car. And I just want to know, I want to know what that felt like. Hmm. I love it. Well, Penn, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you. You as well. That's it for the 27th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back next week. We're talking to James Corden. Um, when I took the job, my frames of reference were like Jimmy Fallon doing lip sync battles, Jimmy Kimmel getting people to read mean tweets and like shots of uh, David Letterman covering himself in Rice Krispies and being lowered into a giant bowl of milk. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and The Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>